And now a word from our sponsors at Betterment. If you're listening to my show, you're looking for tips on how to work smarter, not harder. And let's be real, you're already working hard to earn your money, but how do you make sure that your money is working hard for you? Here's how. With a Betterment Automated Investment and Savings app, your money will go to work. They've got technology that will provide you with advanced tools, and they're built to help maximize your returns, not to mention your time. They have expert-built portfolios of low-cost exchange-traded funds. You know I love those exchange-traded funds. There's automated investing technology, and as part of that, automated rebalancing. Many of you have been asking about rebalancing, and it sort of feels like a hard thing to do on your own. With Betterment, easy peasy. They do it for you. Visit Betterment.com to get started. Learn more about high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, Performance is not guaranteed. Cash reserve offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own? Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. So there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Welcome to the Jill on Money Show. It's Sunday, May 1st. May Day. Um, Yeah, May Day. And today we are airing the second part of an interview um, that uh, took place on a different podcast, Morningstar, the Longview podcast hosted by, co-hosted by Christine Benz and Jeff Patak. They interviewed me, so I don't like when tables are turned like that, but whatever, there it is. Um, In the second part of this interview, we're going to talk about social security strategies and whether or not to be doing it yourself when it comes to investing and financial management. So here's the second part of the interview that they conducted with me for The Long View. How should pre-retirees approach this decision about when to claim Social Security? Do you have any resources that you like to recommend or should everyone delay? How should people get into this decision? Honestly, I had this fight with my father. So I just, it's, it's very funny. You know, so my dad was a little bit of a math head, so he's dead now. But, you know, he was a trader most of his life. And, you know, that's a job that you don't really get to work as long as you want. You sort of age out pretty quickly. And, you know, he wasn't a trader at the kind that makes gazillion dollars a year. He was a journeyman. You know, he was a guy who uh, he went, he traded because he wanted to go to all of our games. You know, I want to control over my schedule, basically. And, um, you know, he lived a good life and he had fun and we had a great, you know, upper class life outside of New York. It was awesome, right? Um, But what was interesting I think, is that, you know, as he got to be 62, he had had some health issues. And so I said to him, you know, maybe 
you should delay Social Security because here I am, a certified financial planner. Like, I, I run the numbers. He's like, how long do I have to live to get the most? Like, tell me what's the number? Because that's the old joke, right? You tell me when you're going to die and I'll tell you when to claim, <laughs> right? So it is interesting that, you know, obviously you can claim as early as 62. Annual benefit is higher for every year you wait until 70. So like, that's the boring thing that we say, but people are like, but I want the money now. And so it's this weird delayed gratification thing. My father claimed early and he died at 76. Now, it was probably a terrible decision anyway, because I really just wanted him to wait to full retirement age because my mother was going to claim on half of his record. But he kind of wanted none of that. And he basically was like so arrogant. He's like, well, I can beat that 8% return. I'm like, can you? I bet not. You know, and and so it was, I must say, like the gal's humor when he knew he was definitely going downhill. I said, I guess you were right claiming at 62, dad. You're right, huh? And he goes, yeah, I wish I wasn't right about that one. But you know, it's just, it's a very hard thing because I believe the social security system is so complex and all these claiming strategies are so complex. My God. And um, it, it's very difficult. So, you know, not to toot anyone's horns, you know, um, you guys are familiar with Mark Miller. He just wrote a beautiful article in the Times about, you know, great software for social security. But, you know, an easy place to start is ssa.gov. And, you know, you create your account and there's an estimator there. But if you have a complex situation to pay 50 or 80 bucks for a one-time fee to get some software, that would be great. And if you're working with a real financial planner, that should be folded into the services they provide. They should be helping you. Working longer, say, past the age of 65 has a lot of financial benefits. And there may be physical, mental health, and social benefits too. But ageism is also a force to be reckoned with. And other issues can get in the way of someone's stated desire to work longer, for instance, their health. Do you have any advice for older adults who want to continue working longer? And you guys are so funny because like, I, this is like, like my hot button issue. So you've just <laughs> glommed onto it. Uh, so if you listen to my show, so I'm 56. And when someone my age calls up and talks about retirement, I'm like, what are you going to do with your life? Like, and I get very angry about it. <laughs> just like, I really have great transference around this <laughs> because I don't know what I would do with myself. And I really love what I do. And hello, I'm a a white collar, knowledge-based worker who can do, you know, 75% of my job from home. 25% of the time I go into a studio and they do my hair and makeup. Not exactly the hardest life in the world. So, you know, I think one of the things that I'm watching in this current labor market is how do the older cohort, what did they decide to do? You're right. There is great evidence that a lot of people who are over 55 left the labor force, but not all of them said, I'm done for good. So I'm interested in seeing if people who, like, if we always think of sort of the young gig worker as the under 35, I'm kind of excited to see whether that starts more for the over 55 and that people can talk to their, if they're employed, uh, I think a great thing to do is to talk to a boss and say, you know, you don't want to pay my full freight anymore. And I don't really need it. I really need benefits for another 10 years. But how about if I go as a part-timer and here's what I think we should do. I think that there are more companies and employers who are willing to 
try to figure out how to retain these people who are really valuable. They have all the institutional knowledge, but maybe not a full freight. And so I do think that, yes, there is ageism, but, you know, thankfully in a tight labor market, that has gone out the window. It's like, you know, some of the old tropes that I always laughed at in other times where things were tight. Like I remember after the Great Recession, oh, there's a skills mismatch. Remember that one? Oh, there's a skills mismatch. People don't have the skills we need. And I'm like, you know what? Why don't you pay them? And why don't you train them? (laughs) And then they'll have the skills you need. Amazing. And what we're seeing in this current environment where workers have leverage for the first time ever is that they are learning that they can use it. And I think for older workers, this is going to be awesome. I think that people have to be a little more creative. And look, just because I like what I do all the time doesn't mean I want to do it as much. I don't love waking up at four o'clock in the morning, five days a week. And, you know, so that's not great. But, you know, I could see doing this a long time and, you know, doing certain aspects of my job for a really long time. And I think about it, maybe the part of this that's really important to to pound home is you want to be thoughtful about these issues and be proactive so that, you know, maybe your boss isn't the most creative person in the world. Maybe you can be the one who says, I have this idea. What do you think? And I think that that's a a great way to arm yourself and think about what you really want. You know, it's like I'm scared when people are like, you know, oh, I'm going to go move near my kids so I can be close to the grandkids. And then the grandkids are teenagers and they don't want anything to do with anyone. (laughs) So you referenced the fact that we've got this tight labor market. Workers have a ton of leverage. And I thought that was a great discussion of what older adults could do to be creative about sort of their next steps. How about for younger workers? What sorts of things should they be asking their employers for at this juncture to take advantage of the fact that they're really holding the cards right now? You know, it's so funny because I think part of this really is hard for a younger person because you don't have the confidence to say, you know, well, inflation's running at 7% and I know I deserve more. And there are certain industries that are already, you know, paying that. But I think what's important to remember is that, you know, you have to determine what you want. And when you're younger, sometimes you don't know, right? Uh, I think that the COVID era has accelerated the ideas of what we think we want, right? So if it's more money, that's easy to ask for. Is it more flexibility? You know, I want to be able to work from home this many days a week. Or is it, I'm a parent and I want to go to a four-day work week. Or, you know, I know I couldn't go anywhere and maybe you can't give me a 7% raise, but how about a 4% raise and another five days of vacation? So I think that You have to have constructive conversations with your bosses. And it's funny to me that, you know, a lot of people just don't want to leave where they are, but there is so much research that leaving pays off, right? You get a better bump in pay if you leave, but maybe that doesn't matter to you. Maybe if you have the ability to craft a work life that is better for you and your family, You don't need as much money and you could be happy or maybe you can thrive. So I think it's having these conversations. Every boss, every company totally understands what's at risk right now. And so I think it's just having the courage to do it, doing your research and knowing what you want. You mentioned that Roth conversions and paying down a mortgage are two of the more popular categories of questions that you get from consumers. What are some of the other biggies that you get most often from consumers that you hear from? 
I have a weird listening audience because I have three shows, right? I have Jill on Money, the podcast. I have Jill on Money, the two-hour syndicated radio show for CBS. And then I have a Viacom CBS product called Eye on Money. And, you know, each audience is slightly different. I think that most of the questions that I get are simply, am I on the right track? I'm a little bit nervous. I work with a broker or an advisor, and I'm not sure this is the right thing for me. Uh, Should I make this move? You know, I inherited a home. We're living it, and it's great. My friend told me that I should get a mortgage and invest. Should I do that? It's almost like they want to come to Aunt Jill and say, what do you think? Is this okay? They want another set of ears and eyes on a situation And, you know, I'm lucky enough, I have an executive producer who's also a certified financial planner. So he got that designation after meeting me. And, you know, it's like a check-in. And, you know, I had this show for a long time. I've been doing the radio show for 11 years and it's really changed. Like, it's, it's interesting to me that people really are much more focused on what they can do to take control of their lives. They were much more willing to cede control to you know, the big wirehouse broker. I think now with more options, with cheaper options, and I feel like people get the idea that, you know, this investing thing, I know it's important, but it's all the other stuff too. And they need help on the other stuff. And there's just not enough affordable help on the other stuff for them out there. So they come back to me and they just want to know, what do you think? Speaking of getting advice, I guess, what are the signs that someone needs help from a professional financial advisor and shouldn't go the DIY route? Do you have any tips on like how to know and also just how to find qualified advice? Because it almost seems like you actually need to know quite a lot to find a Mm. good financial advisor. There are lots of different kinds of people who need financial help, okay? And if you are just looking for the investment of money. Like I, you know, you worked at GE for 10 years and there's $80,000 in your 401k and you don't know what to do with it. You rolled it over to an IRA rollover. And now you're going to go, I want someone to manage that. You don't need that. That's not worth paying for. Okay. Because you can go to any kind of investment platform like a Vanguard or, you know, a robo advisor or a Schwab platform. And you can get that done automatically for you. So there's plenty of options that are really affordable. I think the people who tend to need help are people who have complicated lives. And the complications are such that it takes a lot to really focus on what you need to do. So those are folks who might really benefit from working with a certified financial planner or fiduciary. And those are people who should be looking around and trying to determine What is it I need help doing? Do I need a big financial plan? Should I go to the National Association of Personal Financial Advisors, which is NAPFA.org, and find, like, what is it that you're seeking? Are you seeking someone to do a plan? If you want a plan only, there are types of advisors called fee-only planners. They will do a plan. They sometimes do it by the hour. They sometimes do a flat fee. And they're often folks who don't take any commissions for products. So that's the kind of advisor you would find at NAPFA. You know, if you want to go to get a CFP, there is letsmakeaplan.org and you can type in your zip code and you can talk to people. But there are a lot of resources where you can get some advice 
along with money management. And, you know, that's why Vanguard and Schwab and uh, Betterment and these companies that are really gathering assets first added financial advice because they realized people needed financial advice. The thing is about the industry, it hasn't quite cracked the nut on how to provide advice to people who don't have a lot of money. What about paying for advice? You've you've already alluded to some of the different ways in which advice can be paid for. Do you have a view on what's the best way for consumers to pay for advice? And you know, if the answer is it depends, in your view, what does it depend on? I am somewhat fee agnostic, I must say. Um, I think it's clean to have a flat fee, but people don't like it. And that comes from experience. When I was a financial advisor and a money manager, we actually tried to do this. We tried to do a flat fee pricing model. It was probably too early in the cycle because, you know, now it's probably 15 years ago. But it's tough for people to write checks. Now, I think it's a little bit better now. I do think that we have a generation of people that's used to paying monthly subscriptions all over the place. So I think it's going to develop and become easier. But I think in general... You know, this standard model of it costs X percent of the money that I manage is a model that's going to die eventually. It's not going to die yet, but that's a very classic model of how many financial planners, certified financial planners charge. So Christine comes to me, she's got a million dollars in her retirement account, she needs financial planning. And now, I I mean, I can say to you, well, well, you know, you can pay us $10,000 a year, we'll just take 1% from your portfolio. And you know what's crazy? Like, People know the math, but they do like it. It's like, oh, just pull it from the portfolio. What people are not so good at recognizing is that it's often more than that 1%. That it's, you know, sometimes it's 1.2%. And if it's less than a million dollars, it could be more like 2%. And there could be cost of funds that are inside the account that no one's really accounting for. So I think that as much as possible, you should have a relationship with someone where you feel very comfortable walking into the office and saying, okay. I would like a relationship with you, Ms. Advisor. Tell me exactly how you get paid. And there should be no hemming and hawing. Well, here's the cost. It's, you know, a flat fee of this or it's this percentage of your portfolio. And by the way, for that, this is what we provide. Oh, and one follow-up question is, well, what about the cost of the funds that are inside of this account? Is that incorporated? No, that's extra. It's an extra blank percent. But you've got to be armed with some information. Most, I think most advisors really do want to disclose everything. It's just that they don't do it in a way that the potential client really gets it. And so I'm still often surprised that there are people who contact us and really don't know how they're paying for the services that they are getting. So that's a concern. I guess it's weird. People still have some sort of embarrassment around it. Like there's a a confrontation almost that maybe is sort of hanging over them and they feel, I kind of wish I knew that. I sort of remember, but I don't know. It's okay. You're allowed to ask. It's your money. You know, you're not going to a restaurant. You either have the price fix menu and you know what that is, or each item is itemized and you know what it costs. It's impossible for people to feel comfortable about their decisions without understanding the cost of the services that they're paying for. You know, I wanted to ask about 
spending. We know that Americans historically have been kind of challenged on the savings front, but we've had author Ramit Sethi on the podcast a few times, and he made the point to us that the financial services industry is so focused on getting people to save, and sometimes that is to the detriment of, you know, them sort of living their best lives. So do you have any tips on like how people can balance those two really important goals? So like living your best life and saving for the future? Absolutely. I mean, I completely agree with that. I think the idea of scarcity is not a wonderful one. And I'm not a big fan of diets, even though I'm a lifetime member of Weight Watchers from 100 years ago. Um, I think that the way to do this is to make sure you have a plan that is reasonable, that accounts for what your real life is. It's not a great thing for people to live their whole lives, save, 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 save. I mean, it's fine if that's how you're built. You know, you should factor in like, what do you want to do? Like you shouldn't be miserly either. So I think that in many ways, having a plan can be a relief because I can say to somebody, well, you know, based on these numbers, you can be spending this. Don't worry. It's okay. And you don't have to do that. You know, we had a woman who just called into the show and she had talked about wanting to take a gap year. She was just fried. And we were talking through all the numbers and everything. And then she called us back because she said, you're not going to believe this, but like I had a cancer diagnosis and it was terrible. She's like 40 something years old. She's very young. And she said, uh, I really like, I want to now like blow it out. Like I want to do something really great for like a year. I said, great, let's do it. Like who am I to say, you just had this horrible experience. Let's figure out how to do it. So I think that, you know, you owe it to yourself to be able to do the plan that incorporates the life you want to live, you know, and you can't be dopey about it. You can, oh, I want to, you know, I want to spend $900,000 a year, but I make $100,000 a year. It's not going to work, right? So it has to be reasonable. And there are trade-offs for everything, right? Okay, that's it. That's uh, enough of me being interviewed. We're not doing that so often, Mark. I don't like it. I don't like it. I don't like it. Jill, the control queen. I like having the questions. I like being in control. I like pacing it out, you know? Anyway, thank you to Christine and Jeff for interviewing me. You should go check out their podcast. Mark will put a link to it in the show notes. Thank you for listening today. As always, we'd like to ask you to sign up for the free weekly newsletter and to leave us a rating and review with Apple. Do something nice for someone else today. Grit, growth, grace. Thank you for listening and we'll talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow.